Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. our worship through the study of God's word. So grab your Bibles or your devices and go to uh, Exodus chapter 17. We're gonna start in verse eight, Exodus 17, verse eight. We're gonna finish chapter 17 and then go through at least the first half of chapter eight this morning. This is one of those passages where um, for a long time in the church, it's been taught in a particular way. Um, And I was taught this in a particular way. But as you really study it, you begin to see that it's not really what this passage is about at all. Um, And so I hope to do some of that work here this morning. What that means is the process of getting to this place was a bit more difficult than it normally is. Uh, And so you just need to bear with me, but I think the Lord has some deep, powerful things for us in the midst of it this morning. What's gonna require is for me to do a bit more teaching this morning um, to get under it and to get into where I think we need to be. On the screen will be some verses that I will use this morning. So if you wanna take a picture of that or write these verses down, Uh, for you. And for all you type A'ers, you can start marking your places in your Bible to turn to. In a few minutes, you can can do that as well. I just want you to see that I'm not making any of this up. This is in the scriptures uh, that God has given to us. Exodus chapter 17, let me just give us a bit of context before we get there. The people of God, the Hebrews, the Israelites, have been in slavery in Egypt for 430 years, and God called a man by the name of Moses to set his people free from slavery in Egypt. What's interesting about Moses is that his life is almost very neatly divided into 40-year segments. His first 40 years, he lived in Egypt, and he rose to power um, under the king of Egypt named Pharaoh, or called Pharaoh. So he worked for him. He, he got a lot of uh, attention from Pharaoh. He grew in power, grew in authority. But around the age of 40, Moses recognized that his Hebrew heritage was more, empo- more important than what he was getting as an Egyptian ruler. So he goes out and he sees an, a fellow Israelites being beaten by an Egyptian slave master. And Moses uh, does what any of us would do, and he kills the man. And so he kills, he kills uh, the, the taskmaster, buries him in the sand, word gets out. And so Moses runs to the wilderness where Moses would live for 40 years. While there in the wilderness, Moses uh, meets a woman at a bar, at a well, at a well. He meets her at a well and um, meets her there and uh, ends up meeting her father, uh, kind of rescues her, her and her sisters from some um, evil men, uh, like you do at Wells or whatever you call them. And so he does that. Uh, Jethro is the father-in-law. And so he marries uh, the daughter named Zipporah. Then at the age of 80, so another 40 years, at 80, um, he's working for his father-in-law on the backside of a mountain as a shepherd. And as any good shepherd, he would have a shepherd's staff or a rod with him. And while he's working on the backside of this mountain, who would later come to know as Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, he meets God in the form of a burning bush that does not get consumed. And God speaks to him, tells Moses, hey, it's been fun out here. Let's go back and set my people free from slavery in Egypt. Moses argues back and forth. God ultimately gets his way like he does. And so Moses goes back and sets his people free from slavery in Egypt. God delivers them from 10 mighty, with 10 mighty acts of judgment. We call them the 10 plagues. 
They are set free only to find themselves now up against a dead end that we call the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds. God miraculously delivers them when Moses stretches out his shepherd staff and the waters part, Moses and the 2.1 million Israelites walk through the waters of the Red Sea divided. As they get across, the Egyptians are chasing them. Moses again extends his shepherd staff and the waters come back on the Egyptians, killing them, leaving them dead on the seashore where Sally sells seashells. And so that's happening there. Then they uh, wander for a bit, uh, kind of down south uh, along the Red Sea. They've um, run into a number of issues. They've run out of water and God has provided good water for them from a bitter stream. They ran out of food and so God made it rain bread from heaven. They ran out of water again. This is what we read last week. And so God, through, that, uh, through, the power, through his power and the hand of Moses with that staff, the shepherd's staff strikes a, wa- a rock and the waters flow from that rock and they are nourished again. This has all happened um, probably in the course of a, in the wilderness for a couple of months now. They've been following God by a pillar of smoke uh, by day and a fire by night. They've been following him miraculously through the wilderness. They're only a few months in and they've got another 40 years to go in there, but they don't know that yet, but we know it because we read ahead. And so all of this is happening as God is taking them to the promised land, the Canaan, the land that God had promised to them years and years and years ago. So we pick up this morning in Exodus 17, God has just miraculously provided water from a rock. And he did it uh, in a pretty powerfully fatherly way in that he tells Moses to go and to gather the troublemakers and to bring them and to watch what's going to happen, the elders. And they watch what's going to happen and God provides the water for them. At this point, uh, the Israelites don't like Moses at all. In fact, they're ready to stone him to death. And so they're waiting uh, for that moment and then God miraculously provides. And this is where we pick up in verse eight of Exodus chapter 17. I'm gonna read uh, from Exodus 17, eight, all the way through chapter 18, verse 12. I know our chapters uh, mess it up a bit. I just wanna read through it as one cohesive account. Verse eight, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Rephidim is where they are, where they get the water from the rock. Rephidim means uh, resting places or resting place. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. And while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. Underline that, we'll come back to it. Saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Then chapter 18, verse one. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help, and he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses... 
I, your father-in-law Jethro, and coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. And Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. And then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done in Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord, Yahweh, is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before or in the presence of God. It seems, if in reading it that way, it just seems like a really weird shift, doesn't it? You got this war moment with the Amalekites. And it's amazing what's happened. And we read that Joshua destroyed them with the sword. Like it's just this moment, if you're watching the movie where the soundtrack crescendos, everything is amazing. Uh, There's blood flying everywhere. And at the end of it, Joshua stands up and then Moses has an altar and he plants a flag there, just this flag. And he's like, this is the Lord's. And it's amazing. And you're ready for the credits to roll. And then it just goes black and then it's just a close-up of Moses' father-in-law. You're like, I, what? I don't understand. Things were going so well. Why this now? Well, that's the intent of, the, of Moses, the author, through the sovereign hand of God in what's happening here. And so I wanna walk through it a bit. We have to remember, first of all, Exodus is the second book of a five-book series. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the five of them make up what's called the Pentateuch or the Torah, the law. And it's a five-book series. And so we can't jump into book two and expect to understand everything happening there. We can, but we miss the depth of actually what's going on here. And if you Star Wars people, me, yeah, I am not. I love you. I am not. Um, just never got into it. Didn't do that or comic books or anything like that. But more power to you. Um, our sons are Star Wars people. At least they claim to be. And so I've, we've tried to, I've really tried to get into Star Wars with the boys to try to understand it and figure it all out. And I, I, don't, I don't get it all. I'll be honest with you, I don't get it. But it's fun, it's great. So the other night, um, Colton and Kaysen wanna watch uh, the new series. What's it called? I have no idea what you're saying, but yes, that's it. Uh, Obi-Wan, is that what you said? Yeah, Obi-Wan. All right, so... Uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm very well-versed in this, in this War of the Stars. And so this, uh, Obi-Wan, we're watching it. And this, this just proves to you that I'm having to ask my 13-year-old son, who is this? Is he a good guy or a bad guy? I don't know. Is he good? Is she good? Why, why does she have her hair in braids around her earmuffs? I don't understand. What, what's this? Is, this? is that a thing? He's like, Dad, come on. Ugh. Ugh. We're fine. But there are things, uh, there are things in, in this that he's like, oh, it's, that's him and that's her. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, but it looks cool on the screen. So I'm gonna keep watching it with you until you go to sleep and then I'm gonna watch basketball. So we can, but I'll pretend with you as long as you want me to. And so we're watching it. But what's happening is the same thing that's happening here. There's a moment here in Exodus 17 and 18 that if you're familiar with the account, you're like my son who's like, oh, that's him. That's the one and that's happened. 
But for many of us, you're more like me and you're like, I don't, I don't know who these people are and why, why is this important? And let's just get on to where there's the good business advice where Jethro tells Moses how to set up teams. Let's just go to that because that's more practical. Well, listen, I, I love you. The Bible is not a way for you to set up your business. This is about the glory of God. So there's something else happening here that we miss because we aren't well-versed in the beginning of it. So with that in mind, I'm gonna try to walk us through some of it uh, this morning. So let's get back into it. We're gonna read this in context, not just of the passage, but of the overall narrative of what's happening with God's people. So let's start Exodus chapter 17, verse eight. Then Amalek. Now the assumption is, you know who Amalek is. Like I know who Obi-Wan is. You don't, you don't know who Amalek is because we haven't studied that yet. Because Amalek, this all happens earlier in the book of Genesis. So let me just give you some clues as to who Amalek is. This is important for us moving forward. Amalek is the grandson of Esau. And so now 10% of you are like, oh, that helps. And the rest of you are like, I don't, I don't know what Esau is. Who is Esau? Who is this guy? Is that healthier than other kinds of salt? I don't understand what's happening. And so Esau, um, let's go back through kind of the lineage of the people of God. You've got Abraham, Father Abraham. He had many sons. I'm one of them and so are you. Abraham. And then Abraham um, had a son named Isaac. And he had Isaac and then Isaac had Jacob. Okay, are we good? We're a few generations in. Jacob has two sons. Or, or I'm sorry, Isaac has two sons. Jacob is one of them. Esau is the other one. Jacob is the line by which Jesus would come, the Messiah would come. Esau is the line by which no Messiah would come from. Throughout scripture, um, the line of Jacob is referred to as more of the spiritual line and Esau as the fleshly line. It's, it's evil, the line of Esau. Amalek is from the line of Esau. Now, Esau uh, and Isaac both share the same, they share Abraham, but there's something that happened in the family tree that causes an issue. This is Amalek. The Amalekites are, uh, they're, they're kind of like, they're the base level enemies of God in the Old Testament. That's just who they are. Now, if you wanna dig into it even more and deeper and further, some believe they're related to the Nephilim and even to the Philistines. So these are like giant men. That's a whole other thing that I don't have time for. And we already talked about Star Wars, so enough of all that. But this is, this is who Esau is. And then Amalek comes from Esau. They are deep-seated enemies of God, in, particularly out here in this wilderness. This is who Amalek is. So Amalek comes to fight the people of Israel at Rephidim. Now, at Rephidim, which means place of rest, they just experienced a miracle by God. Water came out of a rock and a bunch of water, enough water to nourish 2 million people. That much water came out of a rock. They just witnessed it. It's been amazing. The elders saw it. It's just a moment where you're like, gosh, I can't believe this just happened. And then, it just says then. So it's almost like immediately, the next day, there's an attack on the people of God. Now, if you remember back earlier, God had led the Israelites a particular way out of Egypt into the promised land because he didn't want them to go through where the Philistines were, where there would have been a big battle because they weren't ready for war. Well, apparently two months later, now they're ready for war. And so they're ready and Amalek comes and Amalek, he's a scumbag, man. He, he fights, he comes from the back. Like he attacks the people who can't quite keep up. This is, this is what he does. So it's evil on all fronts. 
and he fights the people of, of God at Rephidim. And maybe you can relate to that. You've had a moment with God that's just amazing. And then it's like the next day your car falls apart or the next day you find out something from the doctor. Like this is, this is real life, what's happening here. So then look at verse nine. So Moses said to Joshua, I don't know if you have family members like this who they tell you stories and they mention people that you have no idea who they are, but they act like you should know who they are even though you've never heard this name in your life. It's like, you remember them? It's my cousin from my dad's side all the way through my grandfather. You remember them? I, I, no, this is the first I've heard of Joshua. I have no idea who this is. Our, our kids do it all the time, particularly Landry who tells stories about school. And in Landry's kindergarten class, she had probably 17 different boys named Jack. And I don't know who they are. Is it Jackson? No, no, this is Jack. Well, okay, I don't know then. Just tell me the story and I'll pretend to be very interested. So this happens here. I love her. I am interested. Verse nine. So Moses said, to, we don't know who Joshua is. And this isn't a case where you would have known Joshua if you would have paid attention in Genesis. No, we don't know who Joshua is. It's the first time we meet Joshua. Joshua would later be the one who would lead God's people into the promised land because Moses would not be allowed to. But Joshua would lead them into the promised land. Joshua, the Hebrew name for Joshua is Yeshua, which actually then gets translated in the New Testament to the name Jesus. So there's a little plant there, but it's just a man named Joshua who is younger. He's a different generation from Moses. And Moses tells Joshua, choose for us men. Now, if you're paying attention, last week, there were no good men. Do you remember this? Like they all hated Moses. And he had to drag the elders to see how much their complaining has affected everyone. There's no one good left, but there's something happening. Something shifted in that miracle at the rock. And so he tells Joshua, go out, choose for us men, then go out and fight with Amalek. And Joshua's like, I don't think we're, we're ready. Moses is like, you're definitely ready. So they go. And then Moses, <laughs> I love Moses. Hey, while you fight, I'm gonna go stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. I just, come on. You reach a point when you're in your 80s, like you go do all this stuff. I'm gonna watch from up here. So Moses, but notice what he says. I'm gonna take the staff of God in my hand. And here's, again, this staff has been with Moses since he was in the wilderness working for his father-in-law. The staff in and of itself has no power. It's just a shepherd's staff. But God has used this shepherd's staff to create miraculous things over and over again. Most recently bringing water from a rock. And so Moses says, I'm taking this thing with me. And so he goes up to the hill. Verse 10, Joshua did as Moses told him. And he fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, we know Aaron, we met him. He's Moses' brother and her. We don't, I don't know. It's a new guy. Here's her. I'm like, Colton, who's this? And he's like, oh, he was on the starship. You should remember. I don't know who her is. Scholars believe that her might've actually been Moses' brother-in-law, Miriam's bro uh, husband, her. I don't know for sure. That's just what people say. But Moses goes up on top of the mountain. He takes two men with him. So apparently now there are men who like Moses, and they're going with him up to the top of the hill. Verse 11, when Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Now we have to infer here that he's holding the staff. Most likely he's holding the staff. So whenever Moses had the staff extended, it seemed like the people of God were winning the battle. And as he lowered his hand, Amalek started to win the battle. Now this happens for us a lot where you start to become superstitious about things. Do you have superstitions? Don't you, I know you can't admit to it in church, but you do. You have a lucky shirt or a tie you wear to interviews. You have this song you have to listen to before a particular football game. You have those types of things. Then there are times in our life when you're like, man, 
today was a really good day. What did I do differently today? And then you're like, I'm gonna do that again tomorrow and then the next day. And so if we're reading this with that kind of lens, we miss what's happening. This is the power of God in his hand. If it's extended, they're winning. When it's lowered, they begin to lose. So then look at this in verse 12. But Moses' hands grew weary. Now this is the first we begin to see of Moses' frailty. He's getting older and he's not the young man that he was before. He gets weary. And so they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Most commentators would tell us this was 12 to 14 hours of battle that Moses had his hand up and his hand down. So let me just say this to ruin everything you've ever thought. This is not about prayer. At no point does this say that Moses was praying for Joshua and for the military. And I know you've been taught that. Like I know, well, this is the power of prayer. Then you gotta have prayer and community. All those things are true. That's just not from this text. That's not what's happening. Because here's what happens then. Prayer becomes our superstition. Well, that didn't happen because you didn't pray right or you didn't pray enough or you didn't have people around you holding your hands up in prayer. That's not what this is about. This is about the power of God. That's what this is about. This is not about endurance and about leadership. This is not about having assistance. This is not about that. This is about the power of God through the staff that Moses is holding. Verse 13. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. And then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. This is the first time God tells Moses, write a book, write this down. Now, if you're paying attention, there's been some pretty cool things that have happened so far that if I'm writing, I'm like, write that one down. The thing with the sea, write that down. Write it down where I made it rain bread from heaven. Write that down. This is the first time God says, write this in a book. And it's this battle with Amalek, which then leads us to, well, why is this so significant? And it's so significant that God says, be so annoying to Joshua that you keep talking about it to him. Like keep telling him in his ear about this moment. Recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out Amalek. What God is saying is, there's coming a day where I'm gonna destroy Amalek and the entire uh, nation of the Amalekites. I'm gonna destroy all of them. Tell Joshua, remind him. The battle is mine, remind him. Then verse uh, 15. So Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. Yahweh Nisi is the phrase here in the Hebrew. Now we read banner. And if there's one thing Sharon Church knows about, it's banners, don't we? Gosh, we love us some banners. Uh, man, we love it. And so there's banners out there. There's banners that stay up for a long time that shouldn't be up anymore. But there's, we, we, we love us some banners. It's great advertising and evangelism. So we do that. But what happens to our banners is when it's windy, uh, the banners, the grommets fall off and they start waving in the wind. And then you guys call us in Texas. Hey, the banner's broken. Great. I guess I'll go fix it then. And so we, we go fix the banners. But when you read the Lord is my banner, you think of some fabric, vinyl, or mesh thing that's not very durable and it kind of waves in the wind. That's not what this means here. The word banner actually means standard or pole or flag. And that does nothing for us either. So let me explain what's actually happening here. In the Hebrew, there's three different words for this kind of idea. This word, nisi or nis, is kind of where it begins. The idea here is uh, military would march into battle. 
and they would carry not just a flag, but a banner and not made out of vinyl or fabric, but usually made out of wood or metal, like reflective metal. And it was so big that usually it's not just one person can carry it if it's a big army or a big nation, that you would need two, or th- two more people to help you carry the banner, to actually help hold your arms up if you get where I'm going with it. And so they would march into battle and this would be over the people, over the military. And so the enemy would see the military coming and they would see that first. And there would be an insignia, insignia on it or a word or an animal to represent whatever it is. College teams do this all the time. This, this is kind of the idea. And whatever that was represented who the people were, how they fought, what they were about, what they believed in. Now, this particular kind of banner, at some point during the battle, they would find a high place, a safe place, and they would put poles in the ground and they would raise the banner up high. They would hold it up high. And this then would be able to be seen from their military to be able to see this is who we are, it's what we represent, this is where our hope and power come from. And also it was the place where if you were injured, if you won the battle, if you ran out of something, this was the rallying point for the militaries where they all ran back to, to be nourished, to be healed, to be restored. This is what this banner is. And so Moses says, I'm raising this banner that the Lord, Yahweh, is our banner. He's our rallying cry. He is our rallying point. He's where we run for restoration. He's where we run when we are healed. He's where we run in victory. This is over us, this banner of the Lord. Does that make sense? Okay, so this is their identity is the idea. And it all happens here after the battle with the Amalekites. Verse 16, Moses, while doing this, says, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, if that seems contradictory, it probably should, because God just said, I'm going to destroy them. And Moses said, you're never going to destroy them. Well, God makes a promise. And then Moses says, yeah, but from generation to generation, we will always have this battle with Amalek. And the layer there is, because he comes from the line of Esau, you'll always have a battle with your flesh from generation to generation. There's coming a day where God will utterly destroy your flesh, the flesh, the sin. But until then, there will be this battle. And so what Moses says is, so we need this banner to remind us. We need this rallying point. We gotta come back to this. We gotta always come back here. So that's the first account. And then it shifts here. And remember who Amalek is. Remember where he comes from. He is a representative of the Gentiles, another nation. Verse one of chapter 18. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. So we gotta, there's something we're, gotta, we're gonna miss here. He's a priest. So then we're like, oh, he's a good guy, but he's a priest of Midian. So you're like, I don't know what Midian is, but it sounds kind of in the middle. So maybe it's fine. Midian, you're welcome. That was a math joke. Uh, Midian, let's talk about Midian. So you've got Abraham, right? In the Old Testament, in Genesis, Father Abraham. Abraham uh, has a wife named Sarah. And God promises Abraham that through Sarah, he will have an offspring. And from that offspring will come the family line of the Messiah. Jesus will come from Abraham and Sarah. Abraham's like, I'm old and my wife is older. This isn't gonna happen for us. Well, they grow impatient. And so Abraham ends up sleeping with um, Sarah's maidservant named Hagar. And she gives birth to children. That's fine. Um, Shouldn't have happened. Then God gives um, Abraham and Sarah a son named Isaac. And then we meet Esau and Amalek and all that happens. Well, this woman 
Hagar wouldn't be the only woman. There's another woman, once Sarah dies, um, Abraham marries a woman named Keturah. Now, some scholars and rabbis teach that Keturah and Hagar are the same woman. I don't know if that's true or not, so I can't teach it 100%. I'm just saying he marries a woman named Keturah. And from Keturah, he has six more children. And one of those children's name was Midian. Abraham has this family tree that is divided again, just like Isaac did. And it's divided. And Midian then runs off and begins his own family, his own heritage, and they would be called the Midianites. And they would find themselves in the wilderness and they would begin to worship all sorts of God. But the difference is they would include the God of Israel with their worship of other gods. They'd worship a bunch of them. They would uh, syncretism. They would worship a bunch of different gods and meld them all into one or however they want to do it. This is who the Midianites are. Also, not purely Hebrew people who worship the one true God. Later on in the Torah, you would find that God actually um, has a battle or they have a battle, people of Israel, with the people of Midian, the Midianites. And God says, I will destroy the Midianites also. So Jethro, a priest, sure, but a worshiper of a number of different gods. When God is pronouncing judgment on Egypt through the plagues, he makes this statement. I'm gonna judge Egypt and the nations will know that I am Yahweh. We see it here in chapter 17 and 18. The nations, Amalek and Midian, have come to know that he is Yahweh, the one true God. What's different is how they handle that information. One goes to war with them. That's Amalek and the Amalekites. Let's see how Midian responds through Jethro. Verse two, now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of one was Gershom. And then verse four, the name of the other was Eleazar. So let's, let's recap a bit. This is the beauty of studying the Bible in context, of studying a book of the Bible is that we know some of this already. Zipporah was Moses' wife. And if you remember, God calls Moses to go to Egypt to set his people free. And God arranges for Aaron to meet them because Moses is like, I can't do without my brother. And so God sends Aaron to meet them. And on the way there, they stop at a Motel 6, a lodging place. And while they're there, it says in Exodus chapter four, verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, met Moses and sought to put him to death. Do you remember this? And we're not sure why. It just kind of comes out of nowhere. He's obediently following the Lord finally. Then there's this moment but what we've learned, what we begin to learn if we unpack the passage is that Zipporah is also a Midianite. And so Zipporah, like her father Jethro, knows God, knows Yahweh, but she's also worshiping a number of different gods. And what, so what she's done is she's picked and chosen the things that she likes about Yahweh and then the things she likes about other gods. And she's created a God of her own liking, her own making, her own choosing. And one thing she did not like about the God of the Hebrews was God's obsession with circumcision. She's like, this is vile and disgusting and I will not do this to my children. So what we learn by unpacking that passage is that Moses had given into this false worship of his wife, Zipporah, and had not circumcised his boys. 
And so they're there at this lodging place and God has called Moses on a mission and God's not about to send him onto this mission, into this ministry without first dealing with secret sin in his life. And so he deals with it there at this lodging place. Verse 25, Exodus 24, Zipporah took a flint and a flint is not a sharp knife and cut off her son's foreskin. Good morning, welcome to church. And touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Now, that's not like a Valentine's Day hallmark. Hey, I love you. You're a bridegroom of blood to me. Like that's not endearing. This is, she cannot believe. Basically, she's saying, I only did this to save your life. This is disgusting. I can't believe you made me do this. This is gross and vile. You are a bridegroom of blood to me. Now, we have to make some inferences, but this passage here in 18 helps us to understand. At this point, Zipporah ran back home to daddy. And Zipporah took her boys with her and they ran back home. She's fed up with Moses. Can't believe what's happened. Can't believe what she just had to do to her son. And she goes back home. And what do you think the Midian priest Jethro says to her? You think he tells her, you you should have followed the God of Moses anyway. What's your problem? No, he's like, good for you, baby. Yeah, we don't believe in that kind of stuff. So welcome home. You can stay here as long as you want. That's what's happened. But then in chapter 18, Jethro was coming and he's bringing Zipporah and the boys with him. Verse five, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, and coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. What do, you, what do you think Moses is thinking here? Like, how do you think this is gonna go down? She ran home mad, angry. You think, you think they're coming with papers to serve him? Is that what's happening? Like, he's coming to, to take care of it. What, he's coming and he gets, he gets a text from Jethro. I'm coming and I'm bringing Zipporah and the boys with me. For verse seven, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. That's a good idea. Let's start there. And they asked each other of their welfare. You good? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Good. Things go to home. Yeah, how are the sheep? Great, great, great. And they went into the tent. Verse eight. And then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Then look at this, the priest of Midian, worshiping false gods, verse nine, Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said in verse 10, blessed be the Lord, Yahweh, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now, verse 11, now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. Because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel, because now they're friends again, to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. The Amalekites found out that God is Yahweh, the one true God. He is Lord. And he demands worship. He demands single-hearted worship. And the Amalekites go to war. Jethro, the Midianite, finds out who God is and Jethro comes to worship. There are only two responses when we find out that God is who he says he is. We either go to war with him 
or we worship him. Jethro comes, the priest of Midian, and he comes to worship. And it takes us back to chapter 17. The Lord is my banner. Yahweh. Yahweh is the rallying cry. Yahweh is the rallying point. Yahweh is our hope. Yahweh is what drives us. Yahweh is the identity of his people. And when God asserts his lordship, what stirs up in our heart is either war or worship. We've got a choice to make about how we will handle it. This is what's happening here in 17 and 18. And Jethro, the Midianite, begins to worship. Now, if you're noticing what's happening here, amazing things have happened. God has delivered them in battle. They have won. He has reunited Moses and his wife and his family. He's reunited them. He, uh, later on here, will get um, some godly wisdom from Jethro, which will set up uh, the whole system by which uh, churches will function for generations. Great things are happening here. The temptation is to say, well, look what Moses did. Look what Joshua did. But Moses made the banner. No, 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 no. This is what God has done. So here's what we have to wrestle with this morning. How do you respond when God makes sure to assert his lordship in your life? Because there are times in our lives when things are good with God, right? Things are good. But then like the Midianites or like the Amalekites, we begin to pick and choose what we like about different gods. Well, I like this part of God. I like that he's loving. I like that part. I don't like his stance on sexuality. So I'm gonna gonna pull that from the God of culture. Well, I don't, I don't like his stance on marriage. So I'm, gonna, I'm gonna pull that from um, the God of entertainment. And at some point, our God is a jealous God. And he is not gonna stand for our worship of other gods, even if we're pretending to worship him along with it. And so at some point, he will tear down the idols in our hearts. He will fight the false gods. And the way that he does that is by asserting his lordship. He reminds us, no, 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 it's me. I alone am worthy of your praise and adoration. It's me. I alone am worthy of your time and your tithe and your talent. Me, I am. And when that happens, something stirs in us. And what happens is it reveals who our banner actually is. Because we say that Jesus is Lord and we say that he is the banner over us, but the truth is, We have a number of different banners. We have a number of different standards and flags that we fly, a number of different rallying points and rallying places and identities that we run to. And in these seasons where God reveals his lordship, we'll reveal to you where your banner actually is, where you fly your flag. So let's just ask some questions this morning. Who is your banner? Who is your rallying point? Where do you find all hope? Where do you find peace? Where do you find your identity? And when God begins to press on the things that are not him, it's where we start to go to war or we choose worship. Is your banner your job? Your hope is actually in full-time employment. Your hope is in what you make. Your hope is in your title and your reputation. Is your banner in your marriage? Your spouse has become your God. The world revolves around them. And sometimes because you love them, sometimes because you're afraid of them. 
but it does. You make decisions about your schedule and about your spending based on your spouse or your children. Have your children become your banner. That's the thing you run back to. When your marriage is falling apart, well, at least we got the kids. Is America your banner? Is that the flag you fly? You're an American. And when everything's falling apart, at least you're an American. And when things go well, it's because you're an American. Do you fly the banner of being a Republican or a Democrat? That that's your identity. That's when you go into war, that's what's flying above you. This is where I stand on this issue. This is where I stand on this issue. And I hate these people. And I hate these people. Is your banner the Lord or is it a nation? Is your banner a denomination? Maybe your banner is in your works, in your church attendance, in your devotions, in your prayer life, in your title as a deacon or an elder or a small group leader. When God begins to assert his lordship in our life, our soul is agitated and we're left with only two options. Either we go to war with the God of the universe or we worship him. Those are the options. So you've lived in the same political climate that I've lived in. How's that banner going? And yet it's been agitated so much that we begin to align ourselves so much with one side or the other that we fight under that banner and we've lost the identity of being a follower of Christ because now I'm a Democrat, now I'm a Republican, now I'm a conservative. When that's stirred up in action, if you made your spouse your God, God will remove the idols from your life. And things will begin to crumble, things will begin to fall apart, and you're left with war against the God of the universe, or you fall back into worship of the God of the universe. Martin Luther says this, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God, your functional savior. What are you white knuckling clinging to this morning? That if God were to ask for that, you'd go to war with him over it. What this comes down to is that we are idolaters. We worship thrones and gods who are not the one true God. And what's deceiving is that sometimes they don't seem like gods to us because they're good things. Marriage is a good thing. Your spouse is a good thing. Children are a good thing. Tim Keller says, an idol is usually a good thing that we make ultimate. We say, unless I have that, I am nothing. So singles, have you made marriage an idol? To where you say, gosh, if I don't get married, I am nothing. Jesus would take this same line of thinking into Matthew chapter six in his Sermon on the Mount and he would say, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he continues, you cannot serve God and money. When God comes to take your money, are you going to war or are you going to worship? Later on in this Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus is speaking about how God provides. Like you can trust, you can worship him and he will provide for you. And he says this in Matthew 6, 33, you are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, all the needs, all the bread and water will be provided, will be added to you. This is the command to seek first. Now, many of us read first as, well, good, then I'll do that first, then I'll seek other things second. Like I'll, I'll seek the Lord from about 8 to 8.30 a.m. in the morning. And then at 8.30, man, I'm seeking finances. I'm seeking relationship. I'm seeking um, addiction. I'm seeking those things. This is not what the word first here means. This word first means in such a way that it seeps its way into everything. What it means in light of Exodus 17 and 18 is, are you looking for the banner of the Lord? Are you looking for that rallying point? Are you looking for that? When everything's falling apart, what are you looking for? Are you looking for a way out? Are you looking for a new job? Are you looking for a way to make more money? Are you looking for a new spouse? Are you looking for new kids? I've got some, if you're looking for new things, you can't have mine, I love them too much. But this is, to seek first the kingdom of God is, where's the, what are you looking to? In the middle of the war, in the middle of the battle with the flesh, what are you looking to? You seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will come with it. So if you notice, Moses got a lot of great things. But if his pursuit was to restore his family, he might've restored his family, but he would've lost God in the process. But he sought first the kingdom of God and all those things were added to him. God is the banner. The Lord is my banner. So Joshua would take over and he would lead his people into the promised land. And we are so much like the Israelites in that we take a long time to learn things. So again, they're back to complaining. They're back to worshiping false gods. And Joshua says this to them in verse 14 of chapter 24. They've made the claim, we're gonna worship God. And he says, fine, verse 14. Therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. What does it mean to serve him in sincerity? Sincerity is the idea of single-mindedness or pure in a way that gold, if it's mixed with something else, loses its value. It's not sincere. Our worship of the Lord has got to be sincere. It's got to be pure, not mixed in with other gods, not mixed in with culture, not mixed in with social justice, but just God. God. Okay. If you say you want him, here's what we do. We serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Then you put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. When God asserts his lordship in your life, there are only two responses, war or worship. And worship must be sincere. Anything but sincere worship is war with the almighty. So I don't know where you are this morning and what you've come in with. I don't know um, where you find yourself frustrated and agitated. I don't, I don't know where you find yourself discouraged. But underneath all of it, most likely, is the fact that the Lord has asserted his lordship in your life and you don't like it. And so you've gone to war with him. And not outrightly, right? Like, not like Amalek and you haven't attacked from, uh, from the rear. Not that. But what you've done is just fine. Then I just want this part of you. I'm gonna to go to these other gods for what I want other places. I'm gonna to go to the God of sex and the God of drugs and I'm gonna to go to the God of gossip 
and I'm gonna go to the God of social media and I'm gonna go to these gods who give me what I want. Sure, I want heaven from you, but everything else I'm gonna get from somewhere else. Listen to me clearly. That is war against the creator of the universe and no one walks out of war with the creator of the universe. You got two options. You go to war or you worship. And worship brings peace and joy and faithful love of God. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? Maybe the way you're living your life, you haven't seen as war. And so maybe like the Amalekites and the Midianites, you've just syncretized God. You've taken pieces of him. I just, I just need you to hear clearly this morning. You're placing yourself at enmity with the Lord. And I don't, that's not a threat. That's me saying, listen, God's gonna get your heart. I'd rather you just give it to him. When he asserts his lordship, what's your response? Well, Brandon's gonna play and I'm gonna pray over us. And maybe for some of you this morning, what you have to do today is you've gotta, you gotta come to the altar like Moses did and you gotta make a, a declaration. The Lord is my banner. Yahweh is where I run to. Yahweh is my rallying point and my rallying cry. It's not the ideology of a political party. It's not the ideology of, a, of an entertainer. It's not sports. It's not media. It's not finance. I don't run there. I'm running to him. Maybe some of you have run to the false God of your family and you need to come here and confess to him that you've made your family a priority over him. You need to come and lay it all down before him to worship him this morning, that he would tear down the high places in your heart. You'd hand it to him because listen, you're at war with him otherwise. And your life's falling apart and things don't seem to add up and everybody's against you. Are you at war with God? Like maybe, maybe, just maybe he's trying to get to your heart. But you keep fighting instead of worshiping. I'm gonna pray. If you need to come forward to do that, you can. You wanna do it in your chair. You can as well. We have elders and staff who I'm sure would love to pray with you. Let's just pray. And the altar is open. God, thank you for being such a gracious, patient God and heavenly father. God, there are so many times that I've worshiped at the altar of um, being liked, worshiped at the altar of being accepted. I've worshiped at the altar of uh, finance and family. And I can look back on those seasons of my life and I see what you did. See how you pursued my heart by tearing down the false gods, the high places. So Father, I know you are. I know you're doing it today because I know we're humans and I know we're prone to wander. So guys, pray for a spirit of courage and boldness for our people today that, that they would uh, confess and walk in this truth. That there's only two ways to respond. And if we're not worshiping, we're at war. So challenge us and convict us. God, I'm thankful thousands of years after this moment in Exodus, Jesus became our banner who was raised. He was high and lifted up that he would draw all men to himself on that cross. So God, today, if there's someone in the room today who needs to come under that banner of the finished work of Jesus, God, I pray you would allow them to do it. That they would see the frailty of their own humanity as a way that you're drawing them to yourself. And today, God, may we make a declaration of worship.
The Lord is my banner. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.